The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. You know, this morning it was um, good to see the sun. I, I was so happy that we still belong to the solar system. <laughs> you really begin to wonder where you are when you find the... Uh, I know, I've heard uh, my Canadian friends tell me that you have only uh, one day of summer and 364 days of winter. But, uh, so it's a beautiful day, and I do want to quickly uh, wrap up what we began yesterday. And this passage from uh, Ephesians 1, which uh, Rick has been reading to us, and now today it was um, Rachel, uh, remind us uh, something about the beauty of this episode. See, um, when I was uh, talking to our group at this table, I said it's the beauty of the church. The church figures always because the church, in a sense, reflects the beauty of the Trinity. As we look at uh, this ontological um, criteria, oh, I'm sorry, right? We saw this, and then I showed you this slide. We'll start with this today to begin to see, and uh, we are on page three, and I want to be um, quick today and then give you some time at the end of my session for uh, your questions. We already saw that uh, creation, Genesis chapter 1, tells us something about the diversity of God's creation, but still its harmony, its interdependence. And um, I also mentioned, I'm going to repeat this point, what you see in the center of those uh, three columns. A Trinitarian understanding of God explains both transcendence and immanence. This morning at breakfast, we were discussing how the deist uh, commits the error of transcendence only. God just creates the universe and then lets it run, uh, run out, run down, according to the laws of nature. The pantheist, on the other hand, commits the opposite error of saying everything is divine. It's only in Christian theism that we bring together transcendence and immanence. And how the doctrine of the Trinity fits into this is that transcendence assumes a real distinction. God cannot be transcendent over creation if creation is not separate from him. Now that separateness will not have ultimate value unless within the being of God there was a real distinction. Now, this may be a little bit difficult for us to follow, but try and get hold of the first New Age friend next week and begin to talk to him and let him brainwash you a little bit. And then you will begin to see how, in the New Age understanding of reality, all is one. Because if ultimate reality is one, the diversity that we see right here in this room between all of us as human beings and then between us and the chairs on which we are sitting, that distinction loses its significance. So ultimately, we need to transcend that difference, seek that unity. Whereas what the Bible tells us is that this distinction is for real. In fact, if you look at Genesis 1, one of the things God does is to separate. Did you see? He separated day from night, and he calls the light as day, he calls the darkness as night. He is giving distinct identities for these entities, thereby showing that these distinctions is for real. In fact, without those distinctions, you cannot even um, um, start your scientific enterprise. Scientific enterprise requires those distinctions. So Genesis 1 is a great chapter. Of course, that's not um, our emphasis today. But I want to go one step further to the third column. I want you to turn your... Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. I want to read verses 26 and 27 ever so slowly so that you can follow uh, what uh, this amazing uh, verse has to say. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them. Do you see a grammatical error there? Yeah, man, singular. You should have. Uh, gone on to say, let him. You know, when the Bible commits a grammatical error, there is good theology behind it. So, watch out. Always bad grammar comes along with good theology. We saw something yesterday um, about 
uh, told Numa to hug you, the Holy Spirit, new agenda, when he, the spirit of truth has come, which means that the Holy Spirit is not a thing, it's not a force, it's not energy, it's a person. And here, the word, the pronoun them, is because, not just because the word uh, man is generic, because in this particular context, it means the man-woman combination. And let them, in order to create humans in his image, God had to make not one man, but a man and a woman. Because together, they would express the unity in the diversity of the Godhead. Let me carefully read this, and you will, then we'll see uh, some other verses uh, of Scripture. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. For so God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. That last sentence is what throws light on the word them. So God had in his mind uh, both the creation of both man and woman. And I want to tell all my sisters here in this audience... Woman is an after act of God and not an after thought of God. And it is an extremely important thing that you have to begin to see because when you see God created man, woman after the man, you get the idea that woman is a kind of a, a hodgepodge thought of by God at the last minute because something seems to have gone rather strangely wrong with the man he was created, not at all. Uh, which is why I think the Genesis 1 passage on the woman has to be read alongside the Genesis 2 passage, which goes on to give us the details of how God creates the woman. Now, I want you to look at Genesis 2 here. These are not probably in your notes, but um, let me read this to you. Verse 19, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. But then it goes on to say, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. It's in fact a, a seeking of a relationship that God gave us humans the capacity to relate to animals. Those of us who have pets know this. Uh, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And that's when God creates the woman. Now I want you to recognize this, and it's important for us to see this. And in your notes, in the last paragraph on page 3, I have quoted 1 Corinthians 11.3, which I mentioned last night in my answers, uh, answer to one of your questions. And if we were to meet Paul when we, you know, as I grow older, I try to rehearse in my mind what I will tell different people whom I would meet. And um, if you should meet, if uh, some of you ladies would like to confront Paul uh, with your strong feelings that he was a male chauvinist, uh, he's going to quote only one verse to you. And that will be 1 Corinthians 11.3. And it contains enough matter to probably do a hundred doctoral dissertations. See, he crosses two thresholds in this verse. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. He crosses the threshold between humanity and divinity, and he says that uh, man, uh, Christ is the head of man, because Jesus being fully God and fully man bridges the gap between divinity and humanity. But then he crosses the other threshold, which is the gender distinction. We've been talking a lot about gay marriages and so on. I want you to think of this. He says the headship of the man to the woman corresponds to the headship of the first person of the Trinity to the second person of the Trinity. What does this mean? It means that the, uh, the man is not superior to the woman because God the Father is not superior to God the Son. But at the same time, Man is distinct from the woman and is given a certain role within the plan and scheme of God's creation in the same way as God the Son has a certain role with relationship to God the Father. And as I said last night, the male chauvinist says man is superior to the woman. The Bible says he is wrong. The feminist would say that the woman is same as man 
and the Bible says she is wrong as well. In fact, uh, a Christian feminist could even think of a good suggestion to Almighty God in Genesis 2. Why did you have to take the man, the woman, out of the side of the man? Why did you not take another piece of clay and make a woman? Not a bad idea, really. But if you look at the context of the creation of the woman, you would have been another species. Because the Lord God had formed off from the ground all the beasts of the field, from which he could not find uh, anyone who would complement the man. Now I want to go on to verse 24 of Genesis 2, the marriage verse that we read at wedding services. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, uh, <laughs> so, yes, and be united to his wife, and they will be one flesh. Basar Echad. You know, Echad, the Hebrew word for one, is a very interesting word. It is a word for composite unity and not absolute unity. Even in the Shimha, in uh, uh, Shema, in uh, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, is uh, Echad. The, the word for absolute oneness is Yahid. You find in... Um, Genesis 22, verse 2, take your son, your only son, Isaac, uh, your only son. So there is a very interesting uh, distinction there. Not that you can read the Trinity into that word. But obviously, in the marriage act, the man and the woman become one flesh, and still they are two persons. I want you to see that. That is the reflection of the Trinity. The complementarity of the woman to the man is what makes this unity possible. And I want you to look uh, at this picture and then fast forward to Ephesians 5. We will not turn to that. Talking to the Ephesian husbands, Paul would quote the same verse. And then he would say, I speak a great mystery. I speak of Christ and the church. And again, the union between Christ and the church, which Paul himself calls a mystery, is not going to obliterate the identity of the church. The church will preserve her identity, but she will be one with Christ. This is the, what is amazing. And I want to tell you the beauty of uh, gender distinction here. Because of this amazing way in which God has created us, man and woman, a marriage, heterosexual, monogamous, looks back retrospectively on the Trinity and looks forward prospectively to the marriage between Christ and the church. That's why the Song of Songs is one of the central books in the Bible, without which the Bible would not be complete. In fact, Jewish commentators of that book say that it's not about Solomon himself. It was sung in Solomon's coat, probably. It was a simple love story between a shepherd girl and a shepherd boy. Uh, you do not expect Solomon to come skipping down the hills. I mean, I can't imagine that. And Solomon is a poor example of marriage anyway. Uh, in fact, Solomon does figure in that book. And uh, the commentators would say that Solomon wanted to take this girl to be part of his harem. And this girl says, no, thank you. He is altogether lovely. So it's a simple love story. Uh, often used as an allegory both by the Jews and Christians. But even if you stayed purely at the sexual level, you begin to see the beauty of that book. You also see that the woman being taken out of the man is reflection of the begottenness of the son from the father. Whatever that relationship is. I mean, we have used that word. It's definitely not creation. As we sing at Christmas time, begotten, not created. Or as Athanasius would say, the eternal generation of the Son by the Father. But what you see here is an amazing complementarity. The sanctity of a heterosexual marriage is only because of the sanctity of who God is. And that's why the punishment against homosexuality is not just because it, was, it is like any other sin. We are violating something sacred in the being of God. And that's why if you are talking to a homosexual, particularly if he's listening to the Christian message, don't start with the punishment on Sodom and Gomorrah and Romans chapter 1, but start with this beauty of uh, creation of sexual distinction. Now let me make one important corrective statement here. I'm not making everything out of marriage. I'm also talking about the complementarity of men and women as human beings, between brothers and sisters, fathers and daughters, mothers and sons. That's amazing. 
the way God has made us in this world. You know, as my wife and I are growing older, we have many more children than our two biological children. And among younger couples, I find that the husband is my friend, but the wife is my daughter. But the wife is a friend of my uh, wife, and the husband is her son, my wife's son. So we have a very large extended family. And the way we complement each other is something which is absolutely beautiful. Uh, that's really what is there within the Trinity. And you begin to unpack that and you see that this distinction. Now, let me say something else here. Uh, you know the word freedom. I, I've got that here somewhere. Let me see. Yeah. On page four, uh, below the paragraph, let, let me quickly pass through this because I mentioned this, if you remember, the uh, Jesus' divine humanity, going back again to uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3, the first section, the head of every man is Christ, is that it is God who bridges this gap with humanity by sending his son. Jesus assumes humanity upon himself, and therefore he's distinct from God. Uh, I mean, God is distinct from us. He's transcendent. But through Christ, God becomes immanent. One of the Trinity becomes one of us. That is the beauty of the incarnation. And that's why, you know, um, when I speak to Muslims uh, about the Quran, or about Jesus, because uh, they would uh, agree that Jesus is a prophet, but they would surely consider Jesus being called God as blasphemous. But I often say, when God wants to speak to humans, what should be the characteristic of the communicating medium? If the Quran is completely divine and not human, you have a problem on your hands. How can you understand something which is purely divine? But like the Hindus believe about the ho their holy books, Vedas, which they uh, say are human impressions of the divine. So they are purely human. So they're not hearing the voice of God. But the communicating medium should be both divine and human. Because it is divine, you hear the voice of God. Because it is human, we are able to understand it. And that is how the transcendent God becomes imminent in creation. Apart from the other reason I gave you from the Trinity. The incarnation is made possible only because God is Trinity, number one. And secondly, humans are made in the image of God. Which is why... The divine humanity of Jesus is not a logical absurdity, but an epistemological mystery. Like the cube square example I gave you yesterday. If a cube, which is a three-dimensional object, is to come to the, into the screen, which is a two-dimensional plane, it will have to become a square. But it can surely tell other two-dimensional creatures, he who has seen me has seen the cube. Because a two-dimensional creature cannot see beyond two dimensions. The maximum of a cube that a two-dimensional creature can see is a square. The maximum of God that a human being can see is Jesus Christ. But I go on to the whole issue of what freedom is. We talk about the sovereignty of God. And some uh, present-day Calvinists are more Calvinist than Calvin himself. But let me tell you that the freedom of God itself is a relational quality. You know, our cultures, Eastern and Western, have become so individualistic that we think of freedom purely as a standalone quality. I am free to do what I want. That is not quite true. Even Chesterton, in his own jovial way, once said, the freedom of my fist ends where your nose begins. <laughs> <coughs> I think uh, you, you, you need to recognize that... Uh, uh, an astronaut stranded at zero gravity, 36,000 kilometers above the Earth, is not free, is paralyzed. But you and I are free because we are related to the Earth through gravity and friction. That's why we are able to move about. Freedom is a relational quality. The idea that freedom exists only for me to do what I want is an absolutely ridiculous idea. It's blasphemous. No one can live like that, although we often talk like that. You know, the, all these philosophers go on talking like that. But I think we have to be extremely careful that that is simply not true. And God is free ontologically only because he is Trinity. His identity as a human being is freedom. You know, I want to suggest a couple of books. Some of you have been asking me for some reading material. Uh, one book with which uh, this, these seed thoughts were sown in my mind 
was uh, Francis Schaeffer's He is There and He is Not Silent. I want you to get hold of this. It is uh, probably one of the volumes in volume one of the five volumes now uh, in which all his 21, 22 books have been published by Crossway Publishers in Illinois. The other book, more recently, of course, a series of books written by Colin Gunton, who is a British theologian, died rather suddenly three years ago, uh, is a book called The One, The Three, and The Many. The One, The Three, and The Many, Colin Gunton, and an earlier book called The Promise of Trinitarian Theology, Colin E. Gunton, G-U-N-T-O-N. And you get hold of those books, it'll be amazing. One of the things in the uh, one, the three, and the many, Gunton makes a very beautiful point about the role of the Spirit. Now, I've been talking about the Father and the Son. What's the role of the Spirit? You know, the Holy Spirit, I have mentioned it somewhere, have I? Let me locate that. Yes, the top of page four, the unity of the essence of the Godhead and the distinction between the persons of the Trinity provide the philosophical basis for what... Um, for both transcendent and immanence, we have already seen that. We can say that God's transcendence is a reality only because the real distinctions within the persons of the Trinity, the Father is not to be confused with the Son and so on. Similarly, the immanence of God is reflected in the interpenetration in the relationship. If you read John 17, uh, Jesus prays to the Father and he says, you in me, and I in you, I in them, the church. Same from Genesis, uh, Ephesians chapter 1. This whole, what is um, technically called uh, circumincession, the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son, which is really a very marriage uh, paradigm. The uh, marriage act between a husband and a wife, and that's why it's so sacred. We, we are into sacred territory here, my dear brothers and sisters. But the word that was coined in the 5th century by one of the Gregories, I think it was Nazientus, was perichoresis. I've given that to you in italics, which is an interesting Greek word. Perichoreo actually means to dance around. You know, Paul, when he yeah, invited you, you said something about the dancing, you remember, on the first night? It's actually a choreography. It comes from choreo. It is a perichoreo which is the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son through the Spirit. So what Gunton says in that book, it's chapter 7 of that book actually, it's a very heartwarming treatment of the function of the Holy Spirit. It is through the Spirit, the Father and the Son are one. How do I know that? Because how are we one, the church? We are one through the Spirit. And that was Jesus' prayer, that they may be one even as we are one. The unity within the body of Christ is through the Holy Spirit, reflecting the unity between the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit also performs a complementary function. In making us one, He does not remove our distinctions. He still gives us freedom to be ourselves. Because we have been called differently, gifted differently, to be part of the church by the Holy Spirit. And in the same way, the Spirit of God is the one who makes the Father and the Son one God, but at the same time gives space and freedom for the Father to be Father and the Son to be Son. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's what the church is. You know, you begin to see why the letter to the Ephesians is so beautiful. You know, the uh, passage I love most there is uh, uh, chapter 3 the closing doxological section of that chapter is how God will be glorified in his son and in his daughter-in-law, the church. Well, that's what uh, that chapter is all about. It's beautiful because in that wonderfully mysterious way, the unity within the Trinity, the unity in the church is now being brought together because one person of the Trinity has become one of us for good. Is it a compatible marriage? In India we still have arranged marriages. Would you ever arrange a marriage between Christ and the church? What is the constitutional compatibility? The bridegroom is God who has forever become man. The bride is human made a participant in the divine nature. So it is a wonderful marriage between 
two human divine partners. Let's move on to the next. What is our response? And I've quoted from some lovely hymns here. Where is that? Sorry? Am I missing that page? Oh, I've got it. Oh, is it? Your page five. Yeah. You know, there are two hymns which I've quoted from. One is uh, Frederick William Faber. How dread are thine eternal years, O everlasting Lord, by his prostrate spirits day and night incessantly adored. How wonderful, how beautiful the sight of thee must be, thine endless wisdom, boundless power, and awful purity. And the next hymn, of course, the song is from Graham Kendrick. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility and washes our feet. Wisdom unsearchable, God the invisible, love indestructible in frailty appears. Lord of infinity, stooping so tenderly, lifts our humanity to the heights of his throne. I want to tell you, uh, these words can never be true if God were not Trinity and if God had not made humans in his image. What's our response, therefore, is pursuit of God in worship. Let me frankly tell you, today our worship songs lack content. I'm so happy that during this weekend, Rick had chosen such wonderful choruses and hymns uh, for us to be relished. You know, 2007 marks the 300th birthday of Charles Wesley, who wrote 6,000 hymns. Uh, some of them have five stanzas. And for want of time, if you sang stanzas one, three, and five, you miss the script. And these days, we don't sing five stanzas. We sing one line five times. Uh, 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 the whole problem here is we are losing content in our worship. And I think uh, those of us who are musically inclined, I think we have to write some lovely lyrics. I mean, that is the call of God to some of you. I'm not very poetically inclined, but I can appreciate good poetry when I see something. So our God is transcendent, he's imminent. Let me move on to the second aspect, which is the axiological criteria. I mentioned something about axiology as a study of values. Axios, worth, value. And you notice that here again, you need both unity and diversity. Morality, as I mentioned last night, God is love. What is the supreme moral quality? I have no time at all. I wish I had another session. If I were uh, to come here to your weekend, I'm going to demand a third session uh, next time I do the Trinity. But, <clears throat> but I want you to recognize this, that we sometimes think that the holiness of God is very different from the love of God. Holiness of God is what makes him distant. Love of God is what makes him close. That's not true. Because what is holiness? What is the sum and substance of all virtues? It's love. And God cannot be love unless he is Trinity. Because love requires a relationship within God. Not a relationship between God and creation. But a relationship within the being of God. And that's what we see in John 17, 24. By the way, in fact, uh, at the communion service with which we are closing today, I'm going to share a few thoughts from John 13. And if you get any chunk of time uh, to read a big section of scripture together, I suggest that you read five chapters, John 13 to 17, in one sitting. And you will, your minds will be blown by what this man, John, who was young enough not to be embarrassed to lean on the breast of Jesus, and hear the heartbeat of the Trinity. And he tells you something about love. And that's exactly what we read in John 17, 24. So the apex of holiness is love. That is the glory of the triune God. You loved me before the creation of the world. And therefore God is holy only because God is love. And therefore God's judgment is the activity of love towards what is evil. Judgment is not the nature of God. It is the activity of God. Even within the Trinity, words like mercy and grace would not be applicable because within the Trinity, each of the three persons of the Trinity are, is perfect. But mercy and grace are expressions of God towards undeserving sinners. 
And in the same way, judgment of God is the activity of love towards what is evil. And therefore it is love, love, love everywhere. It is not a contradictory cause. Don't draw an unnecessary antithesis between his love and his judgment, his holiness and his judgment. Because holiness is love. Well, secondly, beauty, axiological beauty, is relational because it requires unity in diversity. Look at a painting, many colors but one theme, a symphony, many instruments but one melody, one harmony. You know, one, uh, another word for boredom, monotony, one tone. Nothing communicated, only unity, no diversity. Beauty is a Trinitarian quality. In fact, that's why in Psalm 29 we read, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. In one of my teaching sessions in the Philippines, somebody asked, why God puts beauty and holiness together in this way? I said, that is because holy people are ugly and beautiful people are unholy. Which is a rather strange phenomenon of our culture. But in God, beauty and holiness can exist together. Because both have unity in diversity. That's what God is. So read the last two chapters of the Bible. In fact, the problem I have with many Christians is that our theology begins with Genesis 3 and ends with Revelation 20. We begin with the fall and end with the judgment. And we leave out four important chapters. The first two and the last two. And you see those four chapters and you read the rest of the Bible in the light of the four chapters. And lights will keep coming on. So all commandments in the Old Testament, when you come to morality, look at the Ten Commandments. They're all about relationships. Very Trinitarian. And when Jesus summarizes them into the two commandments, in Matthew 22, in Mark 13, Luke 20, what do you read? You read the same thing. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he puts those two commandments together. And the smart lawyer was really not smart enough. If I were there, I would not have let Jesus off the hook so easily. I would have persisted. I would have asked him, Lord, I asked you for the greatest commandment. You gave me two. Which of the two is the greater? And do you know what Jesus would have said? We'll check it up with him. You can t ask him. This LT fellow told us something. Please tell us whether it's right. Uh, you know, I think Jesus would have probably said this. The first commandment is first. Because without obeying the first, you cannot obey the second. In Christ, our love for God is through the cross. And therefore, it becomes a selfless love. When I tell my wife, I love you, she's not impressed. That's very often because uh, she knows that there is an agenda behind that statement. Uh, so in order to be able to truly love others, you need to learn to love unselfishly. And that's possible only when Christ becomes central in your life. So he would tell us, the first commandment is first only because without obeying that you cannot obey the second. But one important fact of the first commandment is that it is secret. No one knows whether he, any one of us here loves God. It's between you and God. You know, these days sometimes I think a public show of religiosity is supposed to impress others that you love God. I don't really believe that. Only two people know who loves God, God and that person. How do the rest of us come to know? Because of your love for others. So Jesus would have put it this way. The first commandment is first because obedience to the first commandment is fundamental to obeying the second. But the second commandment is equal to the first only because obedience to the second is the evidence that you have obeyed the first. How can you love your brother whom you can see uh, uh, Love God whom you cannot see if you cannot love your brother whom you can see. Relational, relational, relational. Don't ever think of a standalone understanding of holiness. That is a very Eastern idea, a Buddhist Hindu idea, where you leave the world and go to the top of a mountain, nirvana, yoga, whatever you want to call it. Whereas Christianity is all about being involved in the world. You know, uh, Charles Schulz, the Peanuts cartoonist is a Christian, died a few years ago. He had an interesting Christmas cartoon, Charlie Brown saying something like this, I love mankind, it's people that I can't stand. Uh, 
you know, I can shut myself up in a room and be holy. It's only when I come out of that room and meet you that I begin to have my first problems. Do you see that? So holiness is relational. Let's get hold of that. It's only because God is Trinity, he calls us to be holy. One of my uh, favorite chapters in Leviticus is chapter 19. In fact, it begins with the verses, uh, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, and home you. You go on reading the rest of the chapters, it's all relational. You should stand up before the elders and pay respect for the elderly. I am the Lord, your God. You should treat a foreigner as you treat a citizen. I am the Lord, your God. That's the first statement on human rights. Many millennia before United Nations. You should use honest scales and honest weights in business. I am the Lord. All about relationship. Christianity is a social religion. Don't make it an individualist religion. In fact, true holiness is unself-conscious. It is an other word quality. When Moses came down from the mountain, he did not know that his face was shining. Today we probably teach a kind of a holiness which is looking in the mirror and say, I look great. No, that's not holiness. In fact, I know how wretched I am before God. It's only God who can produce any trace of his holiness in me that others can benefit from. Look at the Trinity. The Father, this is John 5. The Father entrusts all judgment to the Son. He delegates all his authority to the Son. Gives him the authority to have life in himself. But what will the Son do? John 5 again. He will do nothing by himself. He will do only what he sees the Father doing. What about the Holy Spirit? John 16. He will not speak of himself. He will bring glory to Jesus. Do you know something? Who is our God? Three self-effacing persons constitute the God whom we worship. You want to learn humility? Look at the Trinity. The incarnation is the overflow of Trinitarian love. Philippians 2 would not have been possible if within the Trinity there was not that wonderful self-giving. What's our response? Pursuit of holiness. Jesus gives us a relational criterion. I'm not going to take uh, any time here. Because I'm going to deal with this just before we break bread together. John 13, 35. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus does not give religious criteria. We have shed too much blood in the name of religion. He gives us a relationship criterion. By our relationship to one another, we will be known. Because that is how uh, a Trinitarian God can be seen by a watching world. Thirdly, and finally, an epistemological necessity of the Trinity. Why God has to be Trinity in order for us to have the right understanding of knowledge. Trying to find out which page is this. Yes, page six. Let me give you an example. Now this is my own laptop, but suppose Rick had lent his laptop to me. I was seeing it for the first time. I would say, I know this laptop. But in the process of knowing, who would be changing? I am the subject of knowledge. This is the object of my knowledge. As I know this object, as I come to know this object, it is I who change. The object does not change. You know, in apologetics, we often talk about God being an objective reality. That is right. But don't stop with the objective. God is also the supreme subject. When we say God is all-knowing, we are actually saying that God is the pure subject as well. Do you see there is a problem here? A problem which we did not know existed. The moment God becomes the subject of knowledge... The possibility that God could change because of this knowledge immediately arises. I'm creating problems for you which never existed. But that's part of apologetics. <clears throat> How can God be all-knowing and still unchanging? How can God be all-knowing and still unchanging? When he becomes the subject of knowledge, when he comes to know a certain object, how can he be the immutable, unchanging God. Is that a legitimate question? Yes, for which there is a legitimate 
biblical answer. Uh, let's turn to Matthew 11, 27. You know, for some years now, I have stopped underlining the two copies of the Bible that I use. One for personal devotion, the other for teaching. You know why? Because when you underline your Bibles, no, no, don't stop underlining your Bibles because I'm saying this, but I'm telling you a problem. When you read a passage a second time, your eye gravitates to what you have underlined and you pass over what you have not underlined. And that is a Christian Passover. There is no such <laughs> festival. Now, I'm going to read for you uh, <coughs> Matthew uh, 11.27, because Matthew 11.28 is heavily underlined in most of our Bibles, but your pen hasn't turned verse 27. What does it say? All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. You know, in the Greek language, present tense is equivalent to the English present continuous. So this verse can actually read, No one keeps knowing the Father except the Son. No one keeps knowing the Son except the Father. Now this is a dangerous translation, but I'll tell you why it is so central to our meditation on epistemology. We are saying that our God is omniscient not because he knows the world, because the world was created by him in time, but because within God there is a subject-object relationship. The Father knows the Son through the Spirit. And one of the greatest epistemological chapters in Paul's writings is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We have no time to go into that, in which the role of the Holy Spirit in this knowing God is so central in whether my coming to know you and I came to know Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. But that is the role of the Holy Spirit in eternity, within the Trinity. It is through the Spirit the Father comes to know the Son, the Son comes to know the Father. But it is not a static knowledge. It is an infinite, mutual, reciprocal knowledge of giving and receiving. And that's because of the transcendence of God's omniscience as well as the imminence of is relating to our world. Look at Genesis 18. What does God tell um, Abraham about Sodom? He says, I have come down to see whether things are really as bad in Sodom as I read in this morning's Globe and Mail, whatever paper you have. Now what does that mean? It means that transcendent God who is omniscient is imminently interested in what is happening. A God who knows everything is listening to your prayer as if he is hearing you for the first time. The whole question, if God knows everything, why should I pray, comes from an understanding of a static epistemology in God, in which God knows everything, has infinite megabytes of information. So my little prayer, one little bite of information, what is going to make a dent in God? No. So we think of God's omniscience as something like an iceberg, which has uh, nothing to do except to sink the titanics that come its way. Now, that is not what God's omniscience is. God's omniscience is a dynamic reality. There are two errors uh, that have... Uh, Come. One is what is called process theology. God is constantly growing. The other is open theism more recently. But that's why when I read these passages in the Old Testament, oh, I just enjoy them because uh, they throw new light on the understanding of Trinity. God who is so completely perfect in his knowledge can still relate imminently. See, do you see this? The three parallels exist all, uh, in all the three areas I've talked about. In his ontology, transcendent and imminent. In love, transcendent and imminent, loving us. And now in epistemology, all-knowing and still listening to us. Malachi 3.16 Those who love the Lord often spoke to one another and the Lord listened and heard and a book of remembrance was written in his presence. And I want to tell you, this is the God whom we worship. An amazing God who relates to us. And that's why, secondly, we need to recognize that knowledge is not just informational, it is relational. You know, if I asked you, is it raining outside? You can check the truth of that statement by going out and seeing whether it's raining. But suppose I told you, I am a true Indian, 
How do you check the trueness of that statement? We can, of course, come and check my passport if I travel on an Indian passport, which is actually a rather lousy travel document because uh, every island in the Pacific Ocean requires a visa. So it's pretty difficult to work in the Asia Pacific with an Indian passport. But that is not quite true. For checking the veracity of that statement, I need to open my heart to you so that you can know whether I am a true Indian. Do you begin to see that? That's what human relationships are, is all about. It's not just a one-way street. It is a two-way knowing. And you know the old Hebrew word yada. So beautiful. Adam knew Eve's wife. What does it mean? He read about uh, Eve's horoscope or something? <laughs> Surely not. See, that is the beauty of this knowledge, which is relational. You know, today we have uh, reduced faith to what? Transactional. I have this much of faith, you better do this much for me. R rubbish. Faith is relational. Prayer is relational. Prayer is coming into alignment with God. Not just telling him uh, bits of information which he doesn't have. Well, some people, you know, in my country, when they pray, they quote even from scripture because God has forgotten. So they say, so turn to <laughs> Jeremiah 33 verse 3 and all that kind of stuff. Quite ridiculous. We are not supplying knowledge to God now. We are relating to him in prayer. Thirdly, knowledge. I mean, this is uh, the third point is really a huge philosophical inference from what we have been studying. We have no time again to develop that. Uh, but I want you to notice that knowledge turns on an objective, subjective axis. Don't go haywire on this objective line, which some of our classical apologists right here in North America have done. No, there is a huge subjective dimension to knowledge because the knower has to know. And a book which was published in 1976 by a Hungarian refugee in Britain who taught physical chemistry, Michael Polanyi, how many of you are familiar with his name? Read Personal Knowledge. And you begin to see in the first two chapters, he demolishes the myth that scientific discovery is purely objective. He says it's rubbish. Even in uh, pursuit of science, there is subjectivity which is involved. And in our knowledge of one another. So true epistemology is therefore subjective. So what is our response? Pursuit of truth. You know, what I've tried to do is in these three responses... The ontological Trinitarian being of God, my response is a pursuit of God. Your response, our response as a church is true worship of God. Pursuit of God is uh, A.W. Tozer's uh, titles for one of his books. For the holiness of God, love in this amazing Trinitarian relationship, our response is love within the body of Christ, which is true holiness. Thirdly, for uh, in response to the epistemological aspect of the Trinitarian being of God. Our response is pursuit of truth, both in God's world and in God's word. Psalm 19 is a good example. The first six verses uh, are about God's creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. From verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, stirring the soul. Double listening, as John Stott calls it. Today, I believe, we have, uh, we have Christians who listen to the world more than they listen to the word. So they preach their messages from Time magazine. On the other side, we have people who read the Bible, but who don't read their newspapers. So what they preach on Sunday morning is totally irrelevant. What we need is both. And those of you who are students, read something like Psalm 8, which is another Trinitarian passage, where this wisdom is rejoicing with God before creation. Don't ever say that your subjects are boring. Your lecturers are boring. Very often they are. But your subjects cannot be boring because they are the creation of God. Delight in pursuing truth in the word and in the world. Amen. Your questions. Yes. <clears throat> I'm going to drag you back to holiness. Right. Um, I guess you stated it, but you didn't prove it to me. No. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I'm still feeling like holiness means separate, and you're going right the other. Okay, good point. Holiness is separateness. Now, I'm going to give you an example, very interesting example. This was a 
question that a Hindu girl, a college student, asked me after Bible study in Delhi many years ago. Brilliant question. She said, you Christians say, God is holy. God is good. How can God be good? Because good is the opposite of evil. And so her argument was, uh, good is the opposite of evil, which of course is a wrong definition. Um, Evil is not eternal, therefore good cannot be eternal. And therefore God is beyond good and evil. Whereas what we say is that God is holy and God is good even before evil came into creation, right? That's our position. Now, when you take that, there's no answer to that question outside of the Trinity, which is what I gave this girl. But let me tell you that in defining evil as good which is fallen, we are making an important statement which relates to your question. When you say holiness is separateness, and you're right, both the Hebrew word Kodesh and the Hagiatso of the Greek uh, mean separateness. But you have a problem with separateness before God creates the world. See, when the world is created, I see the uniqueness of God, separate from all the other things that I'm aware. Which is why idolatry, which is a spurious substitution to who God is, becomes a grievous offense. But within the being of God, what is the separateness? Which is why, in the ultimate analysis, the separateness of God, again, you can apply this to all these three areas, to ontology, because he's separate, he's distinct, he exists forever, over against creation. But within his being, the ontology includes his unity in diversity. Three persons, one God. In the axiology, in the area of morality, holiness, again, distinction within the Godhead. The Father loves the Son. And that becomes the sum and substance. I would agree with you when that holiness interfaces with us human beings. And we begin to see holiness as separate, which is how it is recorded in the Bible. But I would recommend to you, we have no time, but if you read John 17... Jesus talks about the glory that he shares with the Father in eternity. What is that glory? And he goes on to say, because you loved me before the creation of the world. The glory of the triune God is the amazing love relationship that exists in God. But when it interfaces with a fallen world, surely there is a separateness. But that separateness becomes quite meaningless when it is applied to God himself. How is is he holy within his being? What is the need for him to be separate from anything? And there the only construct is a positive construct on holiness, which is pure love. Any other question? Yes? Okay. That's right. That's exactly what transcendence is. You see, we worship God because he is so totally unique. I am the Lord, there is no other. You know that great statement which repeats itself so many times in the later part of Isaiah. And uh, which of course is applicable to us. But then as I said earlier in reply to his question, within the being of God, that otherness is only a distinction that exists between the Father and the Son. That translates as the otherness of God to us in creation. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.